Well, good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Friday Evening Bible Study here again on uh, Friday night, January 13th. It's hard to believe we're zipping through uh, Romans like this. We're into chapter 11 and 12. We'll go through two chapters here tonight. Uh, and once we, we finish, it looks like we'll have two more studies to wrap up the book of Romans. We'll jump right into the next epistle. Uh, obviously, Romans is one of those uh, books that can be difficult to understand. Uh, it takes I'm taking a little bit more time than I will have to in some of the epistles because we're laying a a groundwork or a foundation of what is you know justification, what is grace, and and how how are we reconciled to God, and what does the word propitiation mean, and how does that fit into the scheme of things? Um, what is uh, the topic of predestination all about? And, and other big topics that we're discussing. So once we lay that foundation, that groundwork, as we get into the other epistles, we can quickly review and, and move on. So we can move a little bit quicker uh, through some of them. This is one of the more difficult uh, epistles, to be honest, uh, for people to understand and, and wrap their mind around. So it's uh, good that we're starting here in the book of Romans. Well, tonight, let's start in verse 1, chapter 11, in the book of Romans. It says, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. So one of the proofs that God had not cast away all of his people was the example of Paul himself. And Paul says, look, I'm an Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, today, the the uh, descendants of Benjamin primarily live in Norway and Iceland. Uh, that's where you would find members of that tribe primarily. Of course, people have moved all over the world with uh, modern transportation and other things. But um, And so a lot of the people from these tribes are scattered among the nations. But predominantly, uh, Norway and Iceland would be of the tribe of Benjamin, which Paul was... Uh, a member of that tribe. Uh, I'm also a Benjamite, a Norwegian, so I fit that uh, same category. Let's go to Philippians 3, verses 4 and 5. Philippians 3, verses 4 and 5. And by the way, one of the uh, questions and answers that we just, uh, that I just completed yesterday, uh, well, we're up to, I think, 40 that we'll be posting on the new website, questions and answers that people have written in. And we'll just keep adding to that. But one of them was, where are the tribes of Israel today? And what nations do we predominantly find them? Uh, so that'll be one of the letters you might want to check out uh, once we get it up on the new website. Anyway, in Philippians 3, verses 4 and 5, it says, If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so, says Paul, Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee. So Paul could relate to all of the Israelites that he was speaking to and to the Jews, one of those tribes. Uh, he, he could boast as they could boast. Look, I have descended from uh, the, our forefathers that God made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And um, 2 Corinthians 11, 20, 20, sorry, 11, 22 says this, Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they of the seed of Abraham? So am I. So Paul is saying, look, he hasn't cast away all, all of his chosen people because he hasn't cast me away 
because I fit in that category. So he uses himself here in, in verse 1. God has not cast away his people from people whom he foreknew. So Paul's point is that God is saving a remnant. And that proves that he has not abandoned his plan for his chosen people, for his nation of Israel. And Paul then in the next verses goes on to quote Elijah as an example because Elijah thought that the whole nation of Israel had fallen away, but he was wrong and God showed him that. Now, the Apostle Paul chose to make mention of this example because there was likeness to the case of Elijah in his own case. Now, Elijah had pled with God against Israel. Why did he do that? Because they had persecuted and they had killed the prophets. Now, in the time of Paul, they had killed Jesus Christ. They had also persecuted and they ended up killing many of the apostles. They martyred them. But instead of Paul pleading with God against them, Paul prayed for his countrymen. He he hoped that they would repent and turn around and that, that God could save more of them, that they would be a part of that plan of salvation. And, and um, once again, God says, if you endure the end, the same shall be saved. When we talk about being saved, it's in the process of salvation. We're not saved yet. Um, we have to be called chosen, but then we have to remain faithful. And we'll look at some other verses that prove that here today as well. But let's read what uh, he says. Let's finish verse 2. It says, Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? Paul said, I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed their knee to Baal. So like in Elijah's time, God had intervened and he had set aside a remnant of his people and did not forsake them all. Uh, the remnant in Elijah's day was proof that God had not cast off his people then. And the remnant in Paul's day was continuing proof of God's faithfulness and the fact that he hadn't cast them all away. And we'll see as we go through this chapter and the next uh, that God, even those that God had rejected, if they would repent and turn around, God would be happy to accept them back. Verse 5, even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. It's true, the majority of the nation have been rejected, but they were not all excluded from God's favor. And when he talks about the election of grace, God choose a few with respect to the whole. God's calling and God's election was and is always based solely on grace. We're not called because we deserve it because we're more righteous than somebody else. Um, God chooses who he chooses because he chooses him. Now, and he does it for whatever reason he has in mind. And as Paul said in previous chapters, uh, we have no right to question who God's choosing. Uh, he created all of us. He has a plan for every human being that ever lived. And some will be a part of the first fruits and the vast majority will not. They'll have their opportunity later. All right, verse 6, and if by grace, then it is no longer of works, otherwise grace is no longer grace. You know, by God's free unmerited pardon, he calls us and he gives us an opportunity. And that's why it's so important, as we'll see tonight, that we value that calling, that we hold on to it 
that we don't let it go and slip from our grip, um, that we are thankful and, and that we're appreciative and that we show it by the way we live our lives. It says, uh, second half of verse six, but if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Now, the elect have obtained it, uh, righteousness, by faith. Others were blinded because they did not believe, and God called uh, those that he chose to call, and if they repented and if they believed uh, that Christ uh, was who he was and that he died for us, and um, God says they obtained mercy and they obtained favor while the rest were blinded. Uh, he says the rest uh, were hardened. Uh, let's go to Second Corinthians verses three, uh, chapter three, verses 14 through 16. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we'll start in verse 14. It says, But their minds were hardened, for until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. And if you recall, in the Old Testament, Israel was to be the model nation for all other nations. Um, today, the church of God is his chosen people. They are to be a light to the world. They're to be a model for the rest of the world. The difference is the ancient Israelites did not, as a nation, have God's spirit. We do. So the bar has been set much higher for us. Uh, and as Matthew 5, verse 16 says, look, we're to be a light to the world. And, and, you know, a light is going to shine and people are going to see it. It's set on a hilltop. It's not hid under a basket. And so we must uh, live this way of life and, and be an example uh, of it so that God can be glorified, not so we can. Uh, and frankly, if we weren't called and didn't have this understanding, we couldn't be that light. Um Unfortunately, Israel failed as a nation to be a very good example for everybody else. Um, but God's not done with them yet, as we'll see. Verse 8, just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear to this very day. Uh, we could read Isaiah 29, verses 10 and 11. Uh, let's go ahead and do that. Isaiah 29, it fits real well here. Verses 10 and 11. For the Lord has poured out on you the spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, namely the prophets, and he has covered your heads, namely the seers. The whole vision has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed, which men deliver to one who is literate, saying, read this, please. And he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. So to most of mankind, most of humanity, uh, the veil is still cast over them. They can't see. They can't hear and understand. They haven't been called. And, and Paul talks throughout this book of, of Romans about the fact that we can't earn salvation by works. We are saved by just the unmerited grace, mercy, pardon of Christ and, and God, the, the Father. 
but Paul continually says, you know, shall we sin that grace may abound? No, God forbid. Certainly not. Uh, do we need to keep the commandments? Absolutely. But you're not going to get into the kingdom, Jews especially, right? And other Israelites who thought that was going to get them in if they were super righteous on the external. And yet on the inside, they were, you know, full of dead man's bones, he says. They were full of hypocrisy and all kinds of evil. Uh, God said, look, I'm looking at the heart. You know, I, I, you have to be genuine. You have to be wholehearted. And in your obedience, you have to obey in the letter, not just, I mean, in the spirit, not just the letter. And so most of our relatives who are not in the church just haven't been called yet. They Their mind's not been opened. They don't get it. Uh, and that's the vast majority of people on the planet. And, and again, we should be very thankful that our eyes have been opened and our ears open to under hear and understand what we're reading and studying. Verse 9, And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened that they may not see and bow down their back always. So in effect, David said, when they're eating and when they're drinking securely, let them be caught as if in a trap or a snare and let their security deceive them. And then let them reap the consequences for what they have done, namely rejecting Jesus Christ and, and being responsible for his death. In verse 10, he says, let their eyes be darkened. Let them be spiritually blinded. Make them incapable of discerning the truth or receiving the truth and bow down their back. And uh, that phrase is a, a colorful phrase. Um, your, your back is bowed down when you're carrying a heavy burden. Uh, so in effect, he's saying, let them be subje subjected to toil and servitude as a reward for what they've done and for their sins. And that's what he means by bow down their back always. Verse 11, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So Israel's rejection did not mean the end of God's plan for that nation. But Israel's unbelief brought salvation to the Gentiles, is what he says. I'll go to Acts 13.46. Acts 13.46, because it, it helps to explain this uh, very clearly as well. Uh, verse 11. All right, Acts 13, verse 46. It says, Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. Who's he speaking to? The Jews and other Israelites, right? But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. So they had, they had the opportunity first and again, they rejected Christ and his message, and they crucified him or were responsible for his crucifixion. Of course, the Romans carried out uh, the crucifixion, but at the behest of um, the Jews who wanted him dead. Now, when God says he provoked the Israelites to jealousy, I want to read Deuteronomy 32, verse 21. And let's explain this a little bit because... You might ask, well, why would God do that? Well, let's explain it. Let the Bible explain itself here. Deuteronomy 32, verse 21. It 
says, they have, and he's speaking about the Israelites, right? They have provoked me to jealousy by what is not God. They have moved me to anger by their foolish idols. But I will provoke them to jealousy by those who are not a nation. He's speaking of the Gentiles. I will, mo I will move them to anger by a foolish nation. By, and by the way, Gentile means non-Israelite. Uh, a lot of people, even um, dictionaries will say non-Jew. Uh, but Jews were only one of the 12 tribes. It's really a Gentile, just a non-Israelite. Anybody who's not of Israelite descendant is known as a Gentile in this context. So it's not derogatory, uh, although in the world today, a lot of people take it to be that. Uh, of course, in the Old Testament, the Gentiles were considered a common people, an unclean people. God wasn't calling them, uh, and that's the way he looked at it. But in the New Testament, when he started calling Gentiles, he said, now you are of Abraham's seed, spiritually speaking. You're, you're just like uh, any other Israelite in that respect. You're on an equal playing field of whether you're an Israelite or not, whether you're Jew or not, which was Jew is one of the tribes. Um, so provoking them to jealousy here is not in a bad way. It's really as a means to stir them to action, to, to cause them to bring about repentance and so God used the casting away of the Israelites, as we see here, as an occasion to call Gentiles. And then the calling of the Gentiles as a means of restoring the Israelites and the Jews predominantly here. Um, and, and by the way, the vast for the vast majority of Israel and, and Gentiles for that matter too, the opportunity for salvation lies yet ahead during the second resurrection. And of course... Um, for those who live into the millennium uh, that, that don't die between now and the time the millennium begins. And in the end, uh, we're going to see that uh, God is going to bless both Gentiles and Israelites in an abundant way, as we see in verse 12. It says, Now, if their fall or trespass is riches for the world, uh, the world here is a reference to the Gentiles, in other words, God's chastening of the Israelites led to the Gentiles being blessed. Um, it says, and their failure, riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. So when the lessons learned, God says, not only Gentiles, but Israelites will be blessed the more. It'll be more abundant blessings, but they have to learn the lesson and they have to get to the point where they understand that they need mercy that they needed the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and respect what God and the Son, His Son Jesus Christ are doing and, and the gospel message, the good news message, etc. Now, the, the good news message of the coming kingdom is not just the millennium. That's that's part of it. That's first thousand years. But it's the story that begins then and, and, and moves on through eternity. Uh, we have a thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. Then we have, after that, this huge resurrection, the second resurrection, followed by a lake of fire in which the incorrigibly wicked, the, the ones who can't be reformed or changed or won't repent, are burned up and they become ashes under the soles of the feet of the righteous. They die what the Bible calls the second death in the lake of fire. That ends God's plan of salvation for mankind from Adam until uh, the end of the millennium. And then that second resurrection occurs after that, followed by uh, the lake of fire. And at that point, everyone will either be members of the spirit, members of the family of God, or will be have become ashes 
So this plan is phenomenal. Nobody gets left out. God cares about everybody he ever created and everybody gets their opportunity. It's just that some now, there's an order of resurrection, some now, some during the millennium, others during the second uh, resurrection, that hundred year period that follows the millennium. All right, back to where we were. Verse 13, for I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. In Acts 9.15, we can see that Paul was ordained by God to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And we see where he says, I magnify my ministry. Paul was a humble man and Paul considered himself to be the least of the apostles. He was, This wasn't a self-promotion of Paul. This wasn't Paul bragging or boasting. Uh, when he says, I magnify my ministry, he magnifies his office, not himself. And, and God uh, allowed him to, to perform some incredible miracles, which in effect God did through him. But um, Paul was a humble man and, and Paul was a, a true servant. Verse 14, if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. So Paul, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9.22 that he became all things to all men. Uh, that he might by all means save some. And he cared about his his um, kinfolk. He cared about his fellow Israelites. And he was hoping that he could provoke, that you know God could provoke them to jealousy and that they would repent and that some of them would get back on this path to salvation. You know, the last two verses in the book of James are, are important verses in this context. And when you get to those last two verses in James 5, verses 19 and 20, uh, it talks much like Paul's talking here in verse 14. And, and I'll just read it, James 5, 19. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, verse 20, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. And we have a duty to reach out to our brother and sister if we see them getting off track, falling back into the world, uh, getting caught up in some sins that might take them right out uh, of this, uh, right out of the church and back into the world. And God says, look, if you can see that happening and turn someone back, uh, that's a beautiful thing. Uh, God really appreciates it. And you have to do it in a loving, caring way, do it in such a way that uh, if you were that person, you would appreciate the way that the one trying to, you know, bring you back, uh, you'd appreciate the way they did that. And and so you want to do this in love with the whole intent of helping the individual in the end get back on the path that leads to eternal life because you really do care. Uh, sometimes, you know, that's as faithful or the wounds of a friend. And sometimes those words hurt, but they're what need to be said. And again, the end game, it can't be, you know, I'm better than you or superiority or disgust. It has to be, look, I love you, man, or, or sister, and I, and I don't want you, you know, falling out uh, and not make it to the kingdom. So I have to talk to you. I have to reach out to you as your friend and help you try to get back on a path. That's what Paul was trying to do. Verse 15, it says, for if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world of the Gentiles, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Uh, Isaiah 26 verse 19 is a good uh, verse that talks about that resurrection 
uh, from the dead and the dead living again. Verse 16, for if the first fruit is holy, uh, and James 1.18 says we are uh, a kind of first fruits of his creatures that, you know, God is working with a small group, a remnant now. If the first fruit's holy, and Christ is the first of the first fruits, uh, he's the ultimate goal. The lump is also holy, and if the root is holy, so are the branches, right? All the branches are connected to, to the root, uh, to the main part uh, here. And without the root, the whole tree dies. And Christ is uh, certainly the one that we have to be connected to. We move on to verse 17. If some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness, or riches, of the olive tree... Do not boast against the branches, but if you boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. So what Paul is talking about here when he says wild olive tree, that's referring to the Gentile converts or Christians. The wild olive branches are grafted into fruitful olive trees. And this happened and still happens today um, where a tender branch or a twig, they call it a scion, is taken and grafted into a live tree, what we see is a, a, an olive tree, for instance, that's beginning to decay and die. Sometimes when you graft in a new twig or a branch, uh, not only will that, that uh, grafted in part of the tree begin to grow and produce, but a lot of times the health of the tree gets restored. And uh, so it brings forth fruit caused here by the, the new uh, branch being grafted into the decaying olive tree, and both flourish. So it's a really good analogy. Uh, Paul talks about the Gentiles being called in Ephesians 2, 11 through 13. And this, this fits really well with verse 17 and the fact they're being grafted in here. It says, therefore, remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh who were called uncircumcision by what is called circumcision made in the flesh by hands. At that time, you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were afar off have been made near by the blood of Christ. So these wild olive scions, these, these tender branches, get grafted into this healthy olive or, or decaying olive tree, and they all become healthy. And he also tells the Gentiles, don't boast against the branches. You know, a tendency for us as human beings is to triumph over someone that has fallen or rejected. Um it's a bad tendency, but it is a human tendency, a carnal tendency. And Paul's saying, hey, you Gentiles, don't boast over the Israelites. You know, after all, the Israelites received no advantages from the Gentiles, but on the contrary, the Gentiles did receive advantages from the Israelites. And and Paul tells us in, in Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 12, take heed, uh, he who stands, lest he fall. And again, that's not a perfect quote, but that's what it says there. It says in verse 19, You will say then, branches were broken off, that I might be grafted in. 
So the reason Israel's branches were broken off and cast away, and the fact that they have fallen is because they rejected Jesus Christ and his message so that the Gentiles could be grafted into the olive tree. Verse 20, well said, because of unbelief, they were broken off. So why were they broken off? They didn't believe that Christ was who he said he was. They didn't believe his message. They rejected him. They crucified him or were responsible for his crucifixion. And so the Gentiles might be grafted in as a result. Verse 20, well said, because of unbelief, they were broken off and you stand in faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. You know, in the Old Testament, the Israelites did not enter the promised land because of unbelief. And you know what? We're not going to enter the kingdom if we don't believe, if, if we have unbelief, if we have doubts, if we waver, if we don't stay true and straight down this path. It's so easy for people to waver between belief and unbelief and to doubt and let those doubts creep into their mind in difficult times and trying times and challenging times. When, when everything's good, man, and the, the table's full and the bills are paid and, uh, you know, you're on what we call, you know, calm waters, so to speak, um, no problem. It's it's when the, the trials come, the tests come, the difficulties come that our faith is tested. And God wants to see, do you really believe or not? Are you all in or not? Are you going to obey me? And even simple things like singing praises to me, no matter what. Are you going to obey me and assemble, even though maybe they're going to break into that house or that building and arrest you for assembling on a Sabbath? Or now I'm going to stay home, man. It's getting too too hot in the kitchen. It's too dangerous. I hope we don't think that way. Uh, Mr. Fritz and I and um, Mr. Wyckoff, Andy Wyckoff, are planning to head down to the Philippines the end of this month. And uh, spend a week and visit the brethren and and uh, hopefully ordain an elder down there. Uh, we're headed into the part of the islands that are, the State Department says don't go. It's a level three warning. Uh, they're worried about kidnapping and robbing and things like that. Um, that's not a big deal. We're going to go. We, we need to go. We need to see the people and we need to ordain an elder. Um, I remember when we went to South Africa last time for the feast, it was also level three. Is it safe? No. Is it safe where we're going? No, but uh, we have a job to do. We have to go. It's not uh, as bad as it was for Paul when he went to Jerusalem and he was warned by prophets, you know, inspired by God's spirit, don't go or you'll be bound in chains. And uh, sure enough, he went anyway and God loved that he went. Um, we don't have anything in that ballpark of difficulty. We're just going to go and do what we have to do in a place that's not real safe. But that's okay. Uh, we have to have belief. We have to move forward. We have to do what needs to be done uh, and realize that God's our protector and uh, he's in charge. Uh, but anyway, they didn't enter the promised land because of unbelief. Paul's saying, look, I'm warning you guys, Gentiles, don't get cocky because you've been called now and you've been grafted into God's way of life. Uh, feelings of superiority here are, are out of place. And that should not be the case. And uh, you too, you Gentiles who've been grafted in, you take your calling seriously. Why? He says, lest you end up in the same state as those that God had rejected. Verse 21, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God. On those who fell severity, uh, 
who fell severity, but toward you goodness, if you continue. Notice, if you continue in his goodness, otherwise you will also be cut off. Uh, there are a number of people these days that think, look, once you're called, you know, God's the author and finisher of your salvation, you're on a conveyor that's going to the kingdom. If you fall off, we'll put you back on, you're going to get there. Uh, that's not what the Bible teaches. Uh, we immediately go to Matthew 24, right? Verses 13, 14 in that area. He that endures to the end, the same shall be saved. I think it's verse 13. Let's check up on that. Here's a couple more verses. 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verses 1 and 2. It says, uh, Moreover, brethren, I, do, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved. Notice, if you hold fast that word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Is there something we have to do? We have to hold fast to the word that I preach to you, Paul said. Uh, Hebrews 3, uh, verse 14. Uh, we could read verse 6 too, but we'll just read verse 14. It says, uh, For we have become partakers of Christ. Notice, if, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. It ain't over till it's over. We have to persevere. We have to continue uh, in this path that leads to life. If we are to be saved. Verse 23, and they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. These, these Israelites, and, and you know even predominantly Jews here, but Israelites who have been cut off, these branches have been cut off, God is able to take that branch and graft it back in. And when does he do that? When they quit down this path of unbelief and when they start they repent they change and they get back on the path god goes look i'll graft them right back in again it says for if you were cut out of the olive tree which is wild by nature he's talking to the gentiles and were grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree how much more will these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree Paul's saying, look, it's customary to graft a branch of one tree with another tree of the same kind. Now, the Gentiles who were likened to wild olive branches were grafted into a good tree. And that's contrary to nature because usually what an orchardist would do is graft a good scion. And again, a scion's a young, short branch or a twig of a plant that's used to, to, for grafting, to, to be grafted in. Usually an orchardist would graft a good scion into a wild stock, not the other way around. So they would graft, say, an apple into a crabapple tree. But this is the opposite. We're taking a wild stock and grafting it into a good tree, and that's contrary to nature. That's not normally what's done. And so God says, how much more so the Israelites, which are natural branches... Branch of branches of the olive tree into which the Gentiles are now grafted, be grafted back into their own olive tree to which they formerly belonged. So again, God always is happy to extend mercy and forgiveness to people who repent and get back onto the path of faith and, and true belief and live their lives according to his, his laws. Verse 25, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, 
that hardening in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Uh, fullness of the Gentiles means the complete number or the complement of Gentiles is what's meant here. Um, if you go to the margin, they have it wrong. Uh, they tie this in with uh, Luke 21:24. They tie it in with the times of the Gentiles. That's not what this verse is talking about. It's talking about Israel being chastised and the Gentiles being called and grafted into the truth, into, into this way of life. Verse 26, And so all Israel will be saved as it is written, a deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So this doesn't mean that every individual in the nation will turn to God and be saved. It means the nation as a whole will be saved. Um, just as the nation as a whole, not every individual was rejecting Christ at this time or even yet today. Uh, and by the way, again, most of Israel is going to be called after Jesus Christ's second coming. Their opportunity for salvation lies yet ahead. Uh, Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 33, you could look that up. Fits well with verse 27. Verse 28, concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. So the Jews became enemies when they rejected Christ and his message you know, the message that Christ had brought from the Father, the good news message. Um, and we see here that for the sake of the fathers, God will fulfill the promises that he made to them. Uh, God has promised to use Israel in his plan, and he is going to follow through on that. Uh, they were his chosen people, and in the future will once again uh, be used as an example or model nation uh, in the days to come after Christ returns. Verse 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. And God is faithful. He's going to follow through on what he says. And you can count on that. Um, anybody going through hard times, the sooner you learn to count on that and pray that way and, and be all in and trust God and, and try to live your life the right way and, and do all the things. It can be little things. You know, if God says it's a shame for a man to have long hair, get your hair cut if it's too long. You know, it can be, God says that we ought to dress modestly. And if we're not modestly dressing, let's fix that. Let's be more modest in our attire. On the other hand, if God says, you know, judge not, you be not judged, be a little bit careful about judging everybody and focus on your, your own family and your own life. Get that right. Get that beam out of your own eyes so that then you can see clearly to help your brother. There's balance on all of this, but whatever God wants, let's do it. And I mentioned earlier singing. I know that God wants us to sing. There are a lot of psalms, a lot of verses in the Bible that prove it. God says, when you come before me, and when do we come before him? On the Sabbath and the holy days. Come with praises and singing. It's a command. Whether people want to say it or not, Let's even if it wasn't. If it's a you know God's suggestion, or I know God would like that. That's all we need to know. Let's just do that. That's the kind of attitude and heart God wants in all of us, that we're all in, we're totally committed, we love his way, we're going to be patient with those who are you know, not as on track, they're weak in the faith, that are struggling with some of these little things, like we'll, we'll be patient, God's working with him, he was patient with us, he's still patient with us, um, doesn't mean we want to continue, we, those things need to change over time, and the sooner the better. 
Let's move on here. Verse 30, um, for as you were once disobedient to God, yet now have obtained mercy through their disobedience. God extended a calling to the Gentiles and rejected the nation of Israel as a whole because, again, of their rejection of him. Verse 31, even so these also have now been disobedient, uh, that through the mercy shown to you, they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. You know, in 1 Timothy 2.4, we know that it says, God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Once again, he's just not calling everybody now. He's not bringing them to the knowledge of the truth at this time. Their part in God's plan of salvation is at another time. Unless between now and the time Christ returns or during the millennium, uh, God calls them. But in the millennium, he's going to pour out his spirit on all flesh. During the second resurrection, he's going to take this heart of stone away and give them a, a fleshy heart, a, flesh, a heart that is open to and a mind that's open to understanding the truth and their opportunities come and then. And God knows it's better for them than um, when Satan and the demons are put away. Uh, they still will have to, just like Satan and the demons had no Satan and demons to deceive them and draw them away. They had free moral agency and they chose foolishly. They'll still have to choose right um, and they'll still have to obey God. And um, still got to, you know, uh, to do their part and show God that, look, we want to be a part of your family and we'll show it by our fruits. Verse 33, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. I mean, what a beautiful scripture that shows us how great God really is. Verse 34, for who has known the mind of the Lord who has become his counselor? He's quoting Isaiah 40, 13. Or who has given to him and it shall be repaid to him? He's quoting Job 41, 11. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. God is the creator. He is the sustainer of everything, and he should be praised as such. Romans 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. So on the tales of this, Paul's saying, how much do we value our calling? How much do we value that? I mean, it's a priceless gift. And because we've been called, because of God's mercy, we need to present our bodies a living sacrifice. Now, any sacrifice that was given in the Old Testament was to be unblemished. It was to be without spot or defect if it were going to be acceptable to God. And the same is true for Christians or for us today. And when God says, present your bodies a living sacrifice, are we willing to sacrifice our time, our money, um, even our life in serving God? Are we willing to be a living sacrifice? Um, and if need be, even a dead one, right? Doing the right thing. God's basically saying, use your bodies, use your hands and use your mouth and your mind to just serve and obey God and, and to show love to your fellow man. As we are, after all, bought with a price, and we should glorify God in our body and spirit, which are his, which are God's. And that's our reasonable service. Paul said that's just demanded by reason. You, you, you just reasonably should know that that's what's required after 
what God has done for us. Verse 2, do not be conformed to this world. That means molded or to conform or form uh, by the morals and standards and ways of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Uh, the word transform here means to change in form. It's kind of like uh, what's equivalent to the English word metamorphosis. And you think of a, you know, here's a worm and it, it changes form into a beautiful butterfly. Uh, we've got to let Christ living within us transform us through the indwelling of his spirit to shape our thoughts and, and our behaviors so that we are more like Christ. That we, we do like Philippians 2 verse 5 says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Uh, by world, obviously, uh, the values of the world don't be molded and shaped uh, by that. First uh, John 2.15 says, Love not the world or the things in the world. And if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And he's talking not about the good things in the world, but those things which are evil or not right. Verse 3, For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. So again, one of the fruits of the Spirit is faithfulness, right? God gives us faith. He builds faith into our character. We have a, a part to play in that. And the sooner young people that you can get this in your mind and parents that you can teach this to your children to be brave and be courageous and, and do the right thing and stand up, whether it's Christmas, Easter, uh, whether it's you've got some friends at school going to do the wrong thing and they're going to shoplift and you go along with it. Uh, but the sooner we get away from that and stand up, do the right thing, be a person of character, um, the more faith God will give us. Uh, he's going to, you don't become brave and courageous just overnight. It, it's a lifestyle. You have to get in the habit uh, of being courageous and brave. And then God strengthens that faith and that, and that courage and, and God says the fearful and unbelieving won't be in a kingdom because they haven't learned to trust God. They haven't learned to do the right thing. Uh, they compromise and cave all the time. Uh, they make a lot of excuses instead of, you know, we want results. We don't want excuses, God says. Um, but again, he says here in verse 3, don't think more highly than you ought to think of yourself. Proverbs 25, verse 27 a quick reference there, it says, to seek one's own glory is not glory. You know, there's another proverb that, you know, let another man's tongue praise you. You know, don't sit here and toot your own horn. Um, but don't think more highly of, we. none of us should think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. Uh, and the first step here in changing behavior is self-examination. Uh, we do that around the Passover, but we should do that throughout the year. And we also see in this verse that God has given us certain talents and certain gifts that can be used in his service. And God is the one who gives those. He determines what gifts you have, what gifts I have. We don't all have the same gifts. Um, we also don't have the same measure or portion of the similar or same gift. Some have more, uh, a bigger portion of whatever gift it is than somebody else. And again, not all of us have the same gifts, differing gifts. But whatever gifts God's given us, we are to use in the service of others. 
And and that's what God wants us to learn to think like, to be servants like Christ was. He didn't come to be served, but serve. And, and first, make that 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 12. Uh, I just want to read here a little bit from that. Verse 4, it says, Now there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. And then if we drop down to verse 8, 2 Corinthians 12, 8, he lists some of the, the gifts, um, and you can see how diverse they are. But to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healings by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. And it's important for us not to compare ourselves among ourselves in these respects. Say, well, I wish I had that gift. Or why didn't God give me that gift? Or can you give me this gift? Take what God gave you, run with it, do the best you can. And you know what? He might add more gifts. He might give you your desire and give you the gift that you would love to have. You have to ask for it. You have to ask him. He's the one that gives the gifts. I can't do that. No, no minister can do that. No human can do it. God does it. It says, For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. So gifts, uh, the Greek word is spelled C-A-R-I-S-M-A-T-A, -A -A, charismata. And it refers to God-given abilities that should be used to strengthen others in God's church. And John 3.27, John said, A man can receive nothing unless it's given to him from heaven. It's got to come from God. Now, when we talk about prophesy, the word in this verse is used in a general sense. Now, normally prophesy means to predict future events. And, and of course, that is a good definition of what to prophesy means. But it can also mean to make known in any way the truth of God to influence other people. And that's what it means in this verse. The Greek word is, is used in that context. Uh, it's used in a general sense for all types of gifts that involve speaking the truth, speaking God's word. And here's another gift or ministry. Let us use it in our ministering and he who teaches and teaching. Ministry here means service. In contrast to the speaking gifts, this is a service gift. And we should give ourselves to serving here with zeal if that's the gift God gave us. Or if it's teaching, to be a teacher, be a good teacher. Verse 8. He who exhorts an exhortation, he who gives with liberality, in other words, uh, bountifully uh, and you know, with no respect to persons. He who leads, uh, anybody who rules, whether it's in the church or in your home, he who leads with diligence and he who shows mercy, mercy with cheerfulness. Verse 9, he now gets into a section about how we ought to behave as uh, Christians, as members of God's church, in order to be lights to the world. It says, let love be without hypocrisy. Now, there are at least four Greek words that are used for love in the New Testament. 
The word used here is agape, A-G-A-P-E. It's the highest form of love. It is a self-sacrificial love, like the two verses that started this chapter. Um, that's what's meant here by love. Let love, agape love, the highest form of love, be without hypocrisy. And then he says, abhor evil and cling to what is good. Uh, philios, it means affectionate regard, and it's derived from Philadelphia. Um, it's translated brotherly love, and that's what's used in verse 10, where it talks about brotherly love. Of course, there's uh, a third word used for love, uh, philostorgos, and uh, that's pronounced or said, sorry, P-H-I-L-O-S-T-O-G-O-S. And that means kindly affectionate. Uh, that's also used here in verse 10. And the final one is eros, E-R-O-S, and that's a physical love. Um, that's not used here uh, as in a marriage. Uh, again, Christ, the first love, agape love, Christ is the model of self-sacrificial self love. Verse 10, be kindly affectionate. Again, we're using the third word here, Greek word that we mentioned. And uh, kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, the second love, uh, philos, as in Philadelphia. Um, with brotherly love in honor, giving preference to one another. You have to ask yourself, I have to ask myself, do I always have to be first? Do I always have to have my way? Um, have we learned to give and, and give others preference? Let them uh, have their preference first. Seek to serve brethren. Seek to... Instead of getting what we can get, give what we can give. That's the mindset God's looking for in all of us. And if we can do that now, and we're that kind of person, he can say, look, here's five, here's ten cities. You, I need you to go do the same thing in a bigger way and help more people with that kind of approach and attitude. Verse 11, it says, Not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. God always wants us to serve eagerly and wholeheartedly. He does not appreciate half-heartedness or laziness. Now, one of the things we all have to teach our children, and, and one of the things I've hammered home with all my kids, is Ecclesiastes 9.10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. You know, And God goes on there to say, for there is no work um, or device or knowledge in the grave where you're going. But whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. And, and it doesn't matter what it is. Whatever time you have, sometimes you don't have enough time to build, you know, a, a, a work of art, but you're going to do the best with the time you have and the resources you have. You're just in the habit of, of doing things zealously and wholeheartedly, and that's what God loves. And it's the same thing um, God says here in this, this regard. Verse 12, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation. That's hard to do, to be patient in tribulation. Uh, the Apostle Paul spoke from experience. He spent years in prison, in jails. And sometimes those prisons or jails were not good places to be. Uh, there were other times he was under house arrest in a, in a decent place, but still under house arrest without the freedom to move about as he wished. Um, I don't think any of us would want to have to go through that like Paul did. Um, but if that's required, then we step up and do it. And then he says uh, here at the end of the verse, um, continuing steadfastly in prayer. It's important that we learn to pray every day and several times throughout the day. 
Verse 13, distributing to the needs of the saints given to hospitality. And the Greek word that's used here primarily involves love for a stranger, but it can and does include all forms of hospitality. And it's interesting in Hebrews 13, the first two verses of the chapter, God says, look, let let uh, brotherly love continue. And he said, do not forget to entertain strangers for by doing so, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Um, that's an amazing statement. And someday when God resurrects uh, the people that have entertained angels and didn't know it, he'll say, by the way, you didn't know it, those were angels. Uh, the same could happen to us. Uh, and so it's important that we live our lives accordingly. Uh, hospitality is so important. The fact that we are open our homes to the, the, the brethren and people who are traveling through and uh, even a stranger in a time of need. Uh, God loves that. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Boy, that's hard to do. Bless means to speak well of or praise would be another way to say it. Um, God's saying, love your enemies, uh, right? Matthew 5.44, he, he says, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you. Boy, that's difficult. Pray for those who spitefully uh, use you and persecute you. Uh, that, the bar's pretty high. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. You know, in God's church, in the body of Christ, there are parts sometimes that hurt. Uh, we have prayer requests or we make mention of things and, and everybody should feel the pain. Everybody should be praying for the, those who are going through hard times and pain, uh, painful situations. And also God says when somebody's joyful, we should rejoice along with them, you know, it, for whatever reason. And, you know, not be jealous, but be sincerely happy for the person that something good has happened. You know, and, and again, weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice. And we can never, ever allow ourselves to become indifferent to the suffering or the joy of another person in God's church. And uh, this could extend even in the world around us in, in, a, in a right way. Verse 16, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. You know, we have to treat those with little talent. Um, sometimes they're illiterate. Uh, sometimes they have few abilities. God says, treat them with respect. Treat them with love. Love the poor just the same as you love the rich. Um, just be genuine. This is who you are. You're a good person, and uh, you apply the godly principles, no matter what and no matter who it is. Verse 17, repay no one for evil. Have regard for good things in sight of men. So we should focus on what's good in others, not what can we find fault with. How can we tear somebody down rather than build somebody up? And again, we should not um, repay evil for evil. Verse 18, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. That's our goal. That's our aim to live peaceably with all men. One of those memory scriptures is Psalm 34, verse 14. It says, depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. That's the part. Seek peace and pursue it. Now, Paul said as much as lies or depend, lies on you or depends on you, sometimes peace is not within our 
control or within our reach. And that's why Paul limits the command. On your side of the issue, you're seeking peace, even if the other is not. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. If we leave that up to God, he's the great equalizer, and he will take vengeance in a proper way. Because even that sinner, God loves him. He's, he's got to bring him around. He's got to get him to repent and see his fault and change. And we have to always have that open door. Like, look, if if we're kind, you know, soft answer turns away wrath. If we're kind, we might actually help the person. Verse 20, it says, Therefore, if your enemy hungers, feed him. Genuinely feed your enemy. Don't feed him just to make him feel guilty. Do it out of the goodness of your heart, doing it because it's the right thing to do. But notice, feed him. If he thirsts, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Now, not to do him hurt. If I dumped hot coals over your head or you dumped them over my head, that would hurt. And, and that's a very uh, graphic um, example. But the, the effect of doing good to the enemy would be to produce the, the right kind of pain. Pain resulting from remorse, a conviction of the evil of their conduct. Um, it would smite their conscience would be another way to say it. Leading that individual to repentance, that's the goal. And that's why we have to be the bigger person in these situations. And, and he ends this uh, chapter, do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. You know, the desire for revenge and to gain victory in that way is carnal. You know, if you gain victory over yourself and your character, you, you know, stay in control. Uh, God looks at that very highly. Uh, God says, he who rules the spirit is better than he who takes a city. Uh, we have to learn to control our impulses. And, and it's okay to be angry, but God says, sin not. Uh, we can be angry at the evil or the wrong, or the injustice, but don't let that lead to sin. We need to overcome evil with good. Well, we're out of time. Maybe a couple of minutes over here tonight, not much, but uh, thanks for tuning in. Wow, we're, we're doing well. Two more Bible studies, and we'll wrap up the book of Romans, and then move into another one of Paul's epistles. But thanks for tuning in. I hope that you find these uh, helpful. It's been good for me to go back through my college notes, and, and good news articles, and booklets, and correspondence uh, courses and other things to insert this as we go uh, and review the information myself. But have a wonderful Sabbath, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you again next Friday night. Good night. For more information, go to our website at cogassembly.org. Copyright 2023, Church of God Assembly. All rights reserved.